Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm pleased to have Dr. Michelle Wang with me today. She's Assistant Professor of English at Nyangyang uh, Technological University in Singapore. She's also the author of Eternalized Fragments, Reclaiming Aesthetics in Contemporary World Fiction with Ohio University Press. And it is for this book that she joins us here today. Welcome, Dr. Wang, and thank you for accepting my invitation. Thanks so much, Gargi, for having me. I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to share my work. Thank you. Uh, as I'll, as always, I would like to start with the genesis of this book. What inspired you to write this book? Um, so I, I suppose much of the work that I do is, is often trying to answer um, the broad question of what it means to treat literature as a work of art, as, as one might a painting, for example, or how I might be able to, to convey or to translate the experiences that I have um, with reading particular works of fiction, or whether I find the experience wrenching or, or transformative, or, or basically that whole range of um, experiences that we typically term um, an aesthetic experience. And to really try to answer these very broad questions uh, in as specific ways as possible. Uh, and I should add that I don't think there's only one way to, to answer the question. In fact, the subject would probably be pretty dull if it could be answered so easily to, to everyone's satisfaction. And to be fair, I'm, I'm not always necessarily satisfied with my own answers. So I guess um, I see much of the work that I do as trying to um, improve the quality of these responses to, to try to do justice to um, the diverse ways that we can account uh, for these types of experiences and, and to say something about the value of that approach. Um, and like many other scholars' um, first books, um, so the more, the, the more recent uh, version of my book's Genesis story is uh, tied to that process of transforming my PhD dissertation into a more uh, comprehensive and, and hopefully insightful book project. Um, but I guess the longer Genesis story is that I've, I've been interested in this, in this question of how we might uh, address the issue of aesthetics, which we typically think about um, a little bit more in relation to things like visual arts. Um, but I'm particularly interested in its relevance for literature for about a decade or so now. Um, and my, my interest in the topic was actually sparked by uh, a, a course that I took as an MA student. So at the time in my department, the course in uh, literary approaches was co-taught by five different professors. And there, was, there were these two weeks in which um, one of the professors taught uh, an aesthetics approach. And and those two weeks of the semester actually ended up changing the entire direction of my MA project um, and eventually shaped my PhD topic. So, and of course, the way I've, I've thought about the subject has evolved um, as, I, as I write wide, uh, more widely, but, but it continues to be, I think, informed by many of the questions that I started um, thinking about um, 10 years ago and, and trying to perhaps answer them um, better or more conscientiously um, and in response to the research that I've read. Uh, thank you for your answer. Um, one of the assumptions that we uh, uh, have is that literary criticism generally tends to ignore aesthetics uh, when we analyze contemporary literature. And uh, critics tend to focus on concepts that come from political and social theory. Uh, to what extent do you think uh, this argument is justified? And um, in what ways can we reclaim aesthetics uh, if this is true uh, for our analysis today? Um, yeah, thanks. That's a that's a great question, Gargi. Um, I think in part uh, that this push toward uh, an anti aesthetic is linked to many of the uh, of the issues that you've just raised, um, and uh, I think increasingly scholars who are interested in questions of aesthetics are also seeing that. Um, perhaps the more traditional or conventional ways in which we have approached aesthetics that uh, may perhaps tend to neglect uh, sociopolitical uh, dimensions of, of the novel, uh, which can be very central to, to in fact, uh, its uh, aesthetic strategies, uh, is no longer sufficient. So I think that there are many scholars who are currently working to, to try to blend the two approaches. So I think the two approaches do have sort of uh, a different emphasis um, but uh, there, there are many scholars who are, who are also um, trying to uh, to blend these these particular dimensions of, of the types of analysis that um, 
that you've been talking about, sociopolitical, um, sociocultural, um, that, that focus on these particular dimensions and, and to blend it into their work. Um, I think so. Last year, I read a really good book. I think it was by uh, Caroline Levine, who talks about, uh, I think the title is escaping me right now, but I think the, the title of the book is On Form, and, and she talks about um, how traditional concepts of wholeness, of um, rhythm, of hierarchy has been sort of transformed um, when we take all of these other issues uh, into account. Um, and and uh, the second part is like, how do we, for example, as, as critics, as literary critics, uh, find a space for aesthetics um, in our criticism? Um, is this through um, uh, the cognitive approach that you have taken or are there um, different different ways available and we, we can choose the one that suits us best? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult question in some ways, but I guess it's always quite interesting to me because um, I actually come to... I came to literature a little bit later in my career, so my BA was in a different subject, and I started. I made the switch to English um, in my MA and my PhD. So to me, that is aesthetics is the main reason why I read fiction. It's why I got into the field in the first place. So it's it's always. I didn't know, of course, that 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 was the term that I would use to to characterize why I loved literature. Um, but that was the reason that that I, I I got into literature. So it's always sort of. Uh, slightly odd to me that uh, aesthetics might be thought of as um, incompatible with with what literary studies does. But of course, you're absolutely right because this sort of push against uh, or what they call a sort of anti-aesthetic turn is very much present in uh, many of the sort of uh, approaches that characterize uh, late 20th century literary studies. So, so it's so it's been sort of a process of trying to navigate my own, um, I guess, uh, preferences uh, with with sort of what theory says and, and, and trying to find a way to sort of mediate those two experiences. Because to me, um, aesthetics is sort of the main reason why I'm, I'm in the field. So it's to me, it's, it's always uh, slightly strange, I, I guess, in the same way that to someone else who, who is invested in a different approach, it would be very strange that um, sociocultural dimensions of the book are not at the center of my concerns. So I think that there are a whole um, array of approaches and, and that... All of our different investments in different aspects of the text actually make for the diversity um, and the richness of the field. Um, and, and I learned so much from from reading uh, what other scholars who, who don't necessarily have the same approach that I do um, have to say, and, and that informs my work in part. Um, but but for me, I guess um, aesthetics is is sort of um, fundamental to to my experience of literature. So like I I can't imagine doing um, literary criticism. Uh, in terms of my own work, um, without thinking about aesthetics, uh, it's a quite a strange experience for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, I also want to tease out: is do you see is if there is a contradiction between these two approaches, or do you think um, uh, th- that's not a contradiction? That's just a different difference of uh, approaches, difference of opinions, um, difference of ways of looking at, at the, the work of fiction? Uh, hmm. I don't think it needs to be a contradiction. Um, I think I, I'm leaning more towards that sort of second approach that you're talking about, which is that um, aesthetics gives us a set of, of, I guess, tools to be thinking about dimensions of the text that are not necessarily as prevalent in other kinds of approaches uh, to literature. So I see them as sort of complementary um, and uh, I think it has its own perhaps shortcomings that that um, are perhaps better captured by other uh, 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 approaches. And I also actually, I, I suspect, I mean, I'm not sure if this is actually true because, because aesthetics is so central to, to what I do, but I also suspect that um, different types of texts lend themselves um, well to different types of approaches depending on the sort of um, emphasis and perhaps in some ways where the novelist was sort of going 
with the book. Um, so I do think that there are different types of texts that lend themselves to different approaches. Uh, and it's in particular when, um, I, I'm always especially interested when texts that are dominantly read through one particular frame that may not necessarily be uh, how I connect it with the book. Um, so I, I may be learning something new, but that's not, uh, it doesn't characterize uh, my sort of readerly response. And, and in part, I guess that's what I'm trying to address um, with the selection of, of particular texts that, that perhaps have a strong um, sociopolitical or st- strong sociocultural uh, dimension in, in, in the novels that I chose to address uh, in my book. Um, can you give an example? Because this is very interesting. What kind of a text do you think best exemplifies as okay. a text um, itself to um, this kind of criticism? Yeah. Sure. Um, so I think uh, the two main examples that come to mind are uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, uh, which I discuss in the coda of my book, uh, as well as Arundhati Roy's uh, The God of Small Things. So both of these novels are texts where, uh, when I was reading into uh, the previous scholarly work that, that had been done in these areas, um, primarily, they, they, they had very strong aspects of uh, post-colonial criticism. So, uh, and, and I think those kinds of, that there are ways in which that kind of criticism can be done that uh, can be very uh, insightful and interesting. Um, but I also think that uh, when we sort of, I guess, attend to some dimensions of the text, uh, the main reasons why I connected with the books um, I don't really sort of see that response being addressed in much of uh, the criticism that I read. Um, and in part, my book was trying to address these particular dimensions. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, that, that does uh, answer my question. Um, uh, your book synopsis uh, reads that postmodern and contemporary literature tends to be dominated by disjuncture, paradoxes, and incongruities. And imagine this is what the title of your book uh, refers to, eternalized fragments. Um, why uh, why eternalized? And, and uh, why uh, do you um, call them disjunctures, paradoxes, and incongruities? Can you, can you explain them a little to us? Sure. Um, uh, so I um, I should admit that the phrase actually comes from Marquez. Um, so his his book is the one that I examined uh, in the coda, um, and it actually uh, I liked the possibilities of of the phrase um, and the context in which it appears in Marquez's novel. So I actually quote that in the epigraph of the introduction, um, and I found it to be a good fit with the sort of tensions that I detected between uh, fiction and theory of this particular period. So um, what we do often find in the theory of this period is this sort of uh, anti-aesthetic emphasis. So for instance, someone like uh, Walter Benjamin has written about the sort of dangers of the aestheticization of politics, for example. So, So in the theory, there seems to be a great push for um against aesthetics, I suppose. Um, And yet, so much of the literature of this period I found extremely aesthetically satisfying. So I was trying to sort of address the sort of tensions that I I saw here. Um, And in particular, this idea of um, the fragmentary is quite prevalent in many of the postmodernist and contemporary uh, texts that I look at in this book. So, um, for example, uh, Jennifer Egan's uh, Visit from the Goon Squad um, features a whole series of um, character narrators. Um, and it takes on, it, it plays with different types of narrative voice. Uh, it plays with first person, third person, second person in, in one of the chapters. And so it's fragmentary in that sense of, of the word. Um, but my sense of it was that um, the fragmentary doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, ugly or dissonant or, or unesthetic, I suppose, um, but the idea that these fragments are somehow uh, resplendent, that they're somehow enduring, they're somehow aesthetic in quality, um, seemed to me to, cap- to capture the, the heart of the subject matter that I was um, trying to get at. So uh, in another, I guess, another example, uh, this idea of, so I'm sorry, I think the second part of your question has to do with this idea of the fragmentariness of um, Contemporary literature, I mean, right. 
I mean, how is this fragmentary um, um, special or different from, for example, other ep- epochs of literature? I mean, um, the fragmentariness, let's just say, of a literature written in any other time. I mean, how is this different from, how is this special to contemporary literature and not others? I mean, what's the difference I am trying to understand? Um, okay, so I think... I think there's nothing that's being done in postmodernism that is necessarily uh, altogether uh, highly original in that sense. It's, it's um, as Brian McHale puts it, the intensity with which it is being done by many writers at a time um, that makes it so noteworthy or significant. In fact, many of the sort of postmodernist um, strategies that uh, um, theorists have identified can be found in the work of um, someone like Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and so on and so forth. So there are sort of uh, precursors, but it's sort of the intensity with which we see these types of strategies uh, being employed in postmodernist fiction um, that makes it so uh, unusual or startling or, or, or worth um, examining. Um, I mean, all sorts of interesting things happen in, in postmodern fiction that would have been quite difficult to conceive of in, or, or at least would have seemed unusual uh, in an earlier period. But but they were being done by numerous uh, writers uh, from different countries uh, at the same time. So, so for example, Flann O'Brien is, is one of the writers that I look at. And I think he's sort of, uh, as, as many scholars have pointed out, one of the early examples of a postmodernist writer. Um, and in his book, um, we find, so I'm thinking here of um, Ed Swim Tubert's his first novel, we find this radical flattening of, of diegetic levels. So you have a manuscript within a manuscript within a manuscript, which is not that unusual in and of itself. But you have characters who sometimes migrate between the diegetic levels. Um, and in one instance, a created character literally tries to kill his author. And this is um, before, you know, we had Bart and, 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 and all of the rest of them. So I'm particularly interested in how these sorts of gestures that seem to go against what we traditionally think of as aesthetics in terms of coherence, congruence, um, symmetry patterning, um, how, how the two subjects can then sort of speak to each other, I suppose. Um, yeah, and this leads to uh, very nicely to my next question is that you analyze these from a cognitive point of view. Um, can you can can you elaborate your approach? I mean, how does uh, the cognitive understanding of literature uh, helps us helps us analyze these, helps us appreciate this uh, contemporary this this um, fragmentation, this disjuncture of contemporary literature better. Sure. Um, thanks, Gary. So I think the what I tried to do with um, the sort of cognitive research that I looked at um, was to try to blend it with my interest in aesthetics. So the way I did that was, was to sort of set up um, what I term the sense, uh, moral and form drives uh, in, in the book. And so essentially, I, I'm particularly interested in sort of issues that traditional aesthetics has been, have been interested in for a long time. So something like symmetry, something like patterns, something like form. Um, when we read this in light of what we have now learned about the brain over the last 100 years or so, um, how do things add up or line up or, or not? Um, so in particular, for example, um, the form drive that, that I, I talk about in the book um, actually taps on our brain's tendency for craving patterns, for craving symmetry. So for example, the neuroscientist um, uh, V.S. Ramachandran has persuasively argued that our brain is hardwired to love solving puzzles, that we love searching for patterns, and that this process of um, pattern-seeking actually generates signals to limbic reward systems, um, which is then, of course, likely related to our appreciation uh, of devices, literary devices such as alliteration, such as motifs, um, because these are all types of patterning. So in some sense, it's, it's sort of trying to put together the sort of really interesting research that is being done in the cognitive sciences and seeing, and I guess testing it out with um, our own experience of, of reading fiction, um, to see the extent to which um, 
some of the stuff holds up or, or holds true, I suppose. Um, but that's not to say that um, I'm necessarily, I, I don't necessarily mean that we, we should take research from the cognitive sciences as absolute truth or, or to treat it um, unquestioningly where, you know, our uh, literary analysis simply um, fleshes out these ideas that, that we've derived from the cognitive sciences. We know, of course, that there are, there are limitations of methodology um, to any type of research. Um, and in fact, neuroscience is probably one of the fields where um, scholars and scientists um, readily reiterate how little we actually know about the brain and how that, that research is continually changing. Um, and of course, literary studies and especially postmodernism itself warns us against treating um, scientific uh, and in fact any kind of knowledge um, unquestioningly right, um, to at least express um, skepticism or, or to highlight the problems with, with doing so. Um, but I also think that to, to talk about aesthetics in ways that uh, ignore or, or discount what we've learned from the cognitive sciences uh, can be problematic and, and perhaps uh, a little close-minded. Uh, I've, I've always been very fascinated by the moments of convergence where you know the types of research that, that we're reading in the cognitive sciences um, strikingly illuminates or, or at least shows uh, how many writers or literary theorists um, were very much ahead of their time, right? Um, so, so I think there was one study that that I read. I, I think I mentioned I mentioned it in the book that found that um, experiences of the sublime and and experiences of the beautiful actually reviewed uh, different patterns of uh, brain activity in fMRI scans. And this is an idea that's actually been around for about three hundred years in the field of aesthetics. So it's it's really quite exciting to see how contemporary methods uh, for studying cognition experience are able to enrich the ways that we are thinking about these concepts. Um, because what the neuroscientists do uh, when they look at these portions of the brain that are engaged is enrich the ways in which we can think about the, the concepts themselves, right? Um, because particular parts of the brain are typically associated with functions that we may not necessarily uh, have thought about in, in, in sort of aesthetic engagement. So I think it's, it's that sort of two-way traffic between research in the cognitive sciences and, and aesthetics and narrative theory that I'm, I'm particularly um, interested in exploring. Yes, um, and I, I'm just out of curiosity, I also want to ask if um, uh, your research also focuses on the applications, for example, when we see these similarities um, between uh, neuroscience research and our literary concepts, um, do you... Do your, do you also uh, think about how, for example, literary studies can inform these, or uh, is this something that re remains to be explored? I mean, out of curiosity. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that actually there are actually already uh, literary uh, theorists and scholars who, who are actively collaborating with uh, neuroscientists to sort of shape the research in this, in this area. So, for instance, some um, scholars like... Uh, Gabriel Starr um, and Angus Fletcher, uh, many of many of them have. Uh, they can actually read fMRI scans, and and so the collaboration means that they're taking the 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 knowledge, the understanding of literary study to help shape more nuanced sort of um, experiments for trying to detect uh, these. Um, uh, these aesthetic experiences um, in the study of neurobiology, for instance. So I think that's already being um, that's already happening, uh, and, and it's uh, it's not work that I'm personally able to undertake. But but I think it's already happening, and I, I think that uh, literary study certainly has a lot to offer um, the cognitive sciences. And I think that there are, there are, there are numerous cognitive scientists who. Um, are very engaged with what literature has to offer in terms of its possibilities for um, shoring up what we can learn about the brain. So I think, um, so I mentioned uh, Ramachandran, um, but there are also a couple of others. Uh, Simir Zeki also thinks about this, this um, cross-influence between uh, the, I want to say the arts, I'm not sure if it's specifically literature, but he's also thinking about this relationship between um, studying the brain and the arts. So I think it's it's already happening uh, in, in very exciting ways and, and what 
the future holds, I think, uh, remains to be seen. But I'm, I'm actually quite excited about uh, much of that research. Thank you for letting me know. That, that's something I should also follow on. Um, now, I think I should take a step back because you had already talked about the drives uh, that you use them in your book to analyze um, very diverse books. So you talked about the form drive, uh, but there are other two, which is the moral drive and the sense drive. Um, can you elaborate them uh, for us uh, so that we can get a sense of uh, how these things function? Sure. Thanks, Gargi. So I think, uh, uh, as I mentioned, I uh, what I'm trying to do is to answer sort of fairly broad questions about you know what it means to treat literature as art in as concrete ways as possible. So the model that I'm proposing actually builds on earlier understandings of aesthetics by um, folks like Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Schiller, um, and, and combines that with this more recent uh, research in neuroaesthetics. Um, to suggest that um, when we think about readerly engagement in the process of reading literature, these three drives um, seem to be the most uh, relevant. So uh, since the sense drive is, is sort of related to this idea of um, uh, open-endedness, it's related to this idea of seeking information in an open-ended way, uh, as Brian Boyd puts it. Um, so, in other words, it's it thrives on change. It's and and um, I link it to to sort of what um, theorists and philosophers have have called imagination. And so, because imagination, uh, the, the research from evolutionary biology suggests that Im- imagination is likely to be crucial to evolution because the ability to imagine counterfactual scenarios to make chains of inference is linked to our ability to adapt to an ever-changing world. So there's so on the one hand, we have the sense drive that, that has this impulse towards open-endedness and towards generativity. Um, conversely, the two remaining drives, uh, which are the ones that you asked about, um, the form drive and the moral drive, uh, I think in turn have the sort of uh, um, reverse energy in that they are linked to notions of order, they are linked to uh, notions of unity. So the form drive earlier I mentioned um, taps on our brain's uh, tendency uh, for pattern seeking, for pattern recognition, um, and and the sort of um, limbic rewards that that are associated with them. Uh, The moral drive is also, I think, linked to this idea of order. um, And I was sort of surprised that that was the direction that I I eventually went in. But um, I think it has order-shaping propensities in that, uh, in some sense, I guess, uh, when we think about issues of ethics and morality, we are sort of thinking about ways in which um, a sort of shared set of conduct um, or a, a set set of values um, can be valuable to us as a species, uh, as a whole, in, in the ways that we interact with each other. Um, and in fact, in, in some of the discussions of um, ethics and morality, some of the language tends to draw on concepts um, such as symmetry. So, for example, the uh, US philosopher uh, John Rawls posits that fairness has to do with this idea of um, a symmetry of everyone's relations to each other. So this is also, of course, inherent in something like uh, when we think about like the golden rule, right? Doing unto others what we have them do unto us. So it's that symmetry of, of relations. Um, so so I, I suggest that um, these are the sort of three key energies that are at work um, when we engage with literature. And so by identifying the ways in which these three drives interact and how um, particular modes um, foreground the workings of particular drives, um, I try to account for readerly responses um, and in, in the ways that we engage um, with the text. Um, and, and I guess this is sort of uh, the concrete way, or in as concrete terms as, as, as I can possibly um, work at for, for trying to really get at this idea of of the novel's poetic power, I suppose. This, these moments that arrest us, that remain in our heads for years and years after, that draw us back to this group of books that we love um, over and over again. Um, I'm trying to find a way for talking about um, these moments or, um, in as concrete ways as possible. 
which is, of course, in and of itself a hugely ambitious endeavor that, that is almost um, always certainly to be found lacking in, in any single work of analysis because um, so many of the great books um, seem great to us precisely because they seem um, almost inexhaustible in some ways. So, so I guess um, what I, I do in the book is to try to answer some of these broad questions in, in as specific ways as I can. Um, thank you for your answer. Um, I want to go back. You you said that I am surprised that's the way I took. Why do you say you were surprised at this approach? Oh, um, uh, oh so my comment actually uh, relates to this idea that the moral drive is actually a sort of uh, a drive towards order, a drive towards unity, a drive towards congruence. Um, because I always thought that um, what we typically group or consider as uh, as relating to form, this idea of patterns, this idea of symmetry, um, I guess I didn't see much that was aligned with what we typically consider sort of moral or ethical concerns in novels. So what I was surprised to discover was when I was reading the literature and thinking through um, this material is how aligned they are in that they are both that they both have to do with these ideas of unity this idea of congruence um, and, and it's a sort of unexpected uh, relation because I never made that mental move until I started thinking about um, the drives in, in this particular way so so that was um, a, a mini revelation to me so my, my limbic reward structure was was being rewarded by that pattern that I detected between um, the form and uh, moral drives. Uh, yeah, th- this was also very interesting for me because because um, you give examples of the gold, the golden rule um, of do what you would expect from others, and this this idea of symmetry. But um, these are also very social and political ideas, and and they come back in aesthetics in in form of a specific drive, and and I I always wondered. Um, if, for example, this is this attempt of um, this analysis to to subsume in a way or to um, uh, have a space for the concern, the social and political concerns that that they are there in the books, is that so, or this is me? Um... No, I think I think that's a, that's that's definitely um, a, a way to 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 sort of uh, understand how the moral works uh, and how it. Uh, that particular dimension of uh, aesthetics work. Although I, I, I suppose because uh, different aspects of aesthetics tend to be emphasized at different points, I mean, someone like Kant, for example, um, in the 18th century was already very interested in this idea of the relationship between aesthetics and ethics. So in some sense, I think it's always been there, Um but for one reason or another, uh, that particular dimension seems to be uh, underplayed or, or less attended to. And given the sort of um, uh, social movements that we've, we've seen in the late 20th century and, and the sort of renewed uh, concern, and rightly so, importance uh, of these particular subjects uh, of dimensions of the sociocultural, um, I certainly think that... Uh, uh, and approach that is aesthetics oriented but still able to account for these uh, dimensions of the books uh, to the greatest extent possible uh, is especially important and I do think that the moral drive is one way of trying to um, address to, to sort of uh, address these particular dimensions of, of the book that, that perhaps um, earlier approaches to aesthetics don't quite capture so in a way yes it's sort of sneakily trying to get um these these ideas of um sociocultural sociopolitical dimensions of the text which actually very important to many of the books that um, i look at so something like marquez um, like roy um uh, these concerns are are, are certainly um, absolutely crucial to the book so so i think it's nice to to be able to account for these uh, dimensions of the text um even as my own uh, interest remains sort of rooted to um, aesthetic concerns. And, and and that's interesting. I mean, this is my understanding because 
uh, ethics and, and um, uh, post-colonial um, criticism, for example, would dissociate this moralism from the way it has been Im- imagined in relation to the form drive. I mean, they wouldn't say it's about similarity or it's about order. I mean, th- th- these are whole completely new concerns, which are really not about being there, there being in order. They're, they're more about um, social justice, uh, recognitions, and things like that. And um, and I I I'm I am interested in to know to what extent, for example, in your research, you see uh, emphasis uh, in 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 uh, within the constraints of, for example, within uh, the understanding of the moral drive not associating with the form drive but having its its own way forward is there some research or is th- this is uh, uh not really i mean this is me imagining <laughs> yeah no sure um, um that's a really interesting question uh, i suppose so the way in which um though i see those similarities um between the form and moral drive in that they, i see them as sort of um, systems of uh, ordering or unity that sort of counters the the sort of uh, open-endedness of of the sense drive. Um, I do think that the two drives are doing something um, that is uh, quite different. It's, it's not quite identical. Um, so, I, in, I mean, the, the, the example that sort of comes to my mind at this point is um, the ways in which... So there is this one scene in um, The God of Small Things in which um, the policemen are uh, uh, basically beating uh, one of the characters, Paluta, to death um, or, or close to death. Uh, and I, I was struck by how much of that language um, emphasised hierarchy, emphasized order, you know, many of the things that, that we typically uh, associate with um, something like the form drive. Um, but it's it's using that sort of language in order to point to the sort of uh, um, ethically deficient dimensions of that particular moment. So, so I, I am interested in the sort of intersections between the two, but I think that it is possible to talk about the moral drive without necessarily uh, falling back into language of the form drive. So so in the book, the way that I do this is by um, tying this up with uh, work in evolutionary psychology. So I draw on uh, Jonathan Haidt's uh, moral foundations theory to think about um, how it is we might conceive of uh, this idea of um, uh, a shared, I guess, um, that, that's a bit too strong, um, uh, this notion of how books are challenging or, or shaping or um, countering um, the sort of impulses that we have um, about um, ethics and morality. So I, I think that many, many, many of the books that are most interesting uh, are the ones that um, pose these types of challenges um, in which it's not always so easy to see. Um, it's not as straightforwardly didactic. It's, um, it's, it's moral and ethical complexities are more profound. So, so I, I think those actually make for the most interesting novels. And I think that it's possible to to address these particular dimensions without necessarily uh, thinking about form. So I, I do think that the two, the two drives do address uh, quite different dimensions of the text um, and they have different implications as well. Thank you. Um, that that uh, really uh, helps me understand. Um, and um, in uh, coming back to Arindati Roy, um, in the chapter we talk about her, you, uh, you've also talked about how um, uh, this approach may uh, help us address some of the post-colonial theoretical violences or misinterpretations. I'm interested to know um, what you mean uh, by these uh, misinterpretations or violences, and if you can give an example of these. Sure. Um, so um, perhaps it will be helpful for me to first contextualize um, the remark which I mentioned in the book. 
um, which is specifically in relation to some examples of uh, post-colonial readings of uh, of the novel. So uh, I was, I guess the word might be a bit mild, but I was disturbed by some of the analysis that I read uh, in the course of researching the book. Um, and I, I quote bits of that uh, in, in the book, um, in which the sort of readings uh, that, uh, I guess, adhere to a sort of post-colonial approach to the book uh, of regarding characters like Amu or uh, Volutha in, in particular ways um, seem to vividly contradict my entire experience of the novel. Um, I, I wondered at one point, were we reading the same books? It was a very, uh, it was a very odd um, experience. I, I included Roy's novel as, as one of the eleven books that I, I look at in the, in, the in, in my book monograph. Not only because Roy's novel uh, allows me to discuss um, some of these issues, um, like the sense drive, in, in particularly nuanced ways, but uh, perhaps a more fundamental criteria to me, at least in, in any scholarly work I do, is that I. Uh, I love the novel. Um, I'm absolutely enthralled by the way um, these writers are using language. And so reading some of the responses to Roy's novel um, that draw on this post-colonial lens was a very disconcerting experience. Uh, This is not to say that uh, an aesthetic approach can only be used to affirm a text value or or only to address pleasurable uh, reading experiences. In fact, uh, much of the book, um, because of the the, the subject matter of postmodernist fiction, it does actually address the subject of disconcerting experiences of, of reading postmodernist fiction quite extensively. Um, and I think that there are plenty of examples of postcolonial criticism in relation to uh, The God of Small Things that, that, that are very valuable. Um, but I'm addressing those criticisms, and those are the ones that I quote in the book, that almost seem to, at times, it, it seems that you almost have to willfully ignore or neglect um, what I take to be substantial aspects of what makes The God of Small Things such a wonderful work of literature, you need to actually ignore important aspects of the book in order for that proposed um, post-colonial reading to work. Um, And I was dissatisfied with some of this um, analysis because it seemed to not only neglect sort of key instances of uh, textual evidence um, from the novel, um, but that the proposed reading um, flattens the characters and, and, of course, correspondingly, then flattens the complexities of the issues being raised about caste, about gender. Um, and this is what I found extremely um, problematic. Um, so I think at times, not always, but, but sometimes, um, the ways in which um, some writers uh, use post-colonial criticism, especially when the novel is treated as a sort of a fairly straightforward instance of social reflection um, uh, can sort of obscure important dimensions of the novel. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, by attending to and pointing to sort of aesthetic dimensions of the text, um, it sort of offers a, a different approach um, to, uh, to Roy's novel. There's, of course, also plenty of wonderful uh, scholarship um, out there about um, the God of Small Things, um, but but I was trying to address the ones that I found uh, especially disturbing, I suppose, that, that did not seem to... In- that seemed to completely contradict my experience of reading the book. Uh, because I guess, for me, aesthetics is always about the experience with the art object, um, whether that art object is a work of painting, whether it's a novel, um, whether it's poetry... Um, so when I read sort of literary analysis that doesn't quite line up with the way um, with, with my own experience of reading the book um, I, I, I try to sort of examine and, and, and account for why this might be the case and how attending to dimensions of the book that I was very taken with uh, might give us a different way into the novel um, uh, if I could ask you to give an example to us so that we can understand this too. Oh, sure. Um, so let me just... that, For example, ignores important aspects of a book. If if not Roy's book, um, some let's just say something if you could think of at the top of your head. Sure. Um, so I think, uh, and well, I've, I guess since, since I've already started talking about uh, Roy's book, uh, it might be easier to just 
keep going with with that particular example. So I think one of the one of the sort of criticisms uh, that was raised um, in the, in the book. Let me just have a closer look at some of that so that um, I'm actually giving the right information. So, so, so for instance, one scholar notes that uh, Velutha is uh, represented as uh, a stereotypically uh, beautiful uh, laborer um, and that uh, it, it has to do with uh, a, a, an underprivileged man of a lower caste who is sexualized and feminized here. Um, and, and, and so that the, the, all of these problems. And, and I do... And I do uh, 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 Agree that there are some that there are certainly these sorts of dynamics that um, speak to the pressures of, of of the caste system that that sort of constrain that sort of relationship, but I was very disturbed by the sort of um, implications of some of this analysis. So I think one scholar said that um, he considered Amo's sexualized gaze uh, a misuse of erotic capital. Um, he calls it an infantilizing gaze that objectifies the Luther uh, and this sort of criticism. So um, yeah, this was very odd to me um, because this was not really my experience of the book. Um, and, and I think the, the sort of one of the, the, the important implications of this type of uh, reading is that it flattens the character of the Luther um, dehumanizes him um, and, and essentially reduces the, the reading seemed to essentially reduce the characters to um, primal urges um, there didn't seem to be any sense of agency that the characters had and and I found that quite disturbing because I, I think that part of the strength of the book is um, particularly in relation to, to this um, relationship in the in the novel is it's precisely because these two characters recognized what they were up against um, and nonetheless decided to uh, love each other um, that makes that partly makes the book so powerful um, and so it didn't line up it didn't line up with my my experience of, of the book and and um, I, I wanted to offer a, a different way of to a different way of approaching the novel, but also ways that are exemplified by the textual evidence. Um, and so I, I point to that scene in which they, they recognize their, their sort of um, desire for each other um, and, and that it's a two-way sort of process. Um, so so I, I think um, thinking about the characters' uh, agency in, is, is important to, to this book, especially given the sort of... Um, the, the pressures of the system uh, in which they live. Um, so, so I wasn't very satisfied with, with that particular reading. And, and so, uh, in a sense, this is my response, um, that when we attend to sort of aesthetic dimensions of the text, um, what emerges? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And um, against um, this, um, so... Um, this um, uh, let's just say misreading of uh, post-colonial uh, uh, criticism how can aesthetics if you could give us an example help us uh, appreciate better uh, the dynamics of a book uh, okay so I think the the way in which Roy uses language is quite powerful um, I mean, there are so many absolutely beautiful and devastating um, passages in, in the novel that, that remain with me. Um, and I think attending to those particular dimensions of the text um, forestalls a kind of easy judgment of the characters. Uh, it forces us to attend to the layered complexities of the character. So I guess, you know, if one wanted to, um, uh, one could read Amu as a bad mother who, you know, picks, you know, uh, sexual desire over her children or, or whatever it is. But, but I think those are sort of readings that, are, that do not attend to the sort of aesthetic dimensions of the text and that when we attend to these dimensions of the text, 
Um, it forces us to dwell with its complexities, with its nuances, um, with how the way in which the stories are told can shift the ways in which we view uh, the world, uh, whether it's the world that is presented to us in the novels or um, the way in which we interact in, in, in our world. So I think um, it's that attention to nuance, it's that attention to forestalling easy judgment or ready judgment or judgment that sort of can be very quick. Um, I think aesthetics, uh, hopefully when, when, when it's, when it's uh, I, I'm sure that there can be very poor uh, aesthetic readings as well, but, but I think when it's um, perhaps done in in a insightful manner, um, it can lead us to dwell with these complexities. Yeah. Um, uh, since we are now at the end of the podcast, I'd like to talk to you about your future projects. What are you working on currently? Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to, to, to share that. Um, so, uh, at present, I'm working on uh, two projects, I suppose. Um, the first is a book chapter on contemporary Irish fiction. So I've been reading and rereading many wonderful novels by uh, Anne and Wright and Catriona Lally, Sarah Baum and others. Um, the other is a larger project, um, which is which has been commissioned by um, Taylor and Francis, the Rutledge Companion to Literature and the Arts. So I'm uh, co-editing that with um, two of my colleagues um, uh, at NTU, um, Professor Sue Murphy and Cheryl Julelli. So in that book, we assemble about 40 contributors um, to talk about the intersections between uh, literature and the arts. Um, so we've got a great um, group of contributors and we're really excited about the essays. So that is right now we're in the process of reviewing those essays at present. So Hopefully, um, those two projects will be out um, sometime next year or, or perhaps in uh, 2024. Thank you. I, I hope you, if we see you again on, on the podcast and all the best for your projects. Thank you so much, Gargi. Thanks for having me.